welcome our audience to today's uh, webinar, which is organized by Edgewalker Cafe. Uh, my name is Sharad Agarwal, and I'm the founder of OnlyWebinars.com. I'm happy to host this webinar. And we have a very interesting topic uh, today. Um, it's called uh, Today is the Face of Tomorrow. And I think uh, we are all living in very exciting times and uh, things are moving at a very fast uh, pace. And I think uh, we also um, need to, uh, to move uh, equally fast, you know, uh, at the speed of thought, as they say. And I like to use the metaphor, which is uh, Shinkansen, which is the bullet train in Japan. And they say, um, uh, if you've seen the bandwagon, you've missed it because you have to be on it, right? <laughs> So, so uh, that's my take on today's topic. And uh, now it is my honor to introduce to you our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Sartoris, who's joining us from Hawaii. Aloha, Dr. Elizabeth. Aloha. Let me introduce you uh, to the audience. So Dr. Elizabeth is an evolution biologist. She is also a futurist and a well-known author. So if you are looking for some inspiration today, you are in the right place. I can assure you that. Next, I want to introduce you to Dr. Judy Neal, who's the founder of Edgewalkers organization. Welcome, Dr. Judy Neal. I also want to introduce you to our super moderator, Susan Furness, who has basically organized this webinar. So thank you, Susan. And for those who don't know Susan already, uh, she is good in connecting the dots and great in connecting the hearts. I hope that introduction does justice to you, Susan. Uh, so, Very special, um, thank you. Right, thank you. So uh, Susan and Elizabeth will be talking about various topics today. And I think they'll touch a chord with all of us. They'll be talking about the environment, about the economy, about nature, about sustainability, uh, even touch on space exploration, uh, COVID times, before Corona, during Corona, post-Corona, leadership issues, and basically what our future is going to look like. So I'm gonna hand it over to Susan to take it forward with Dr. Elizabeth. All yours, Susan. Sharad, thank you so much. Um, that, that was a wonderful introduction as always. And I just want to pick up on the, um, the big minds, big hearts one, or you know, full of heart, because indeed, if it wasn't for your big heart, a lot of us on screen today, and indeed, during this sort of DC time, during Corona time, might not be connected, because you've done so brilliantly with only webinars and really help helping us be so nimble online. So big heart to you, Sharad. Thank you very, very much. Um, and yeah, well, how exciting to have you all here today. Look, first of all, we, we don't expect um, a big audience in the room today because as you know, um, Dr. Elizabeth, myself, Sharad, Judy Ellis, who's also there, hi Ellis, we're straddling some time zones like you all are. And there's a whole load of us that have registered who just, Elizabeth, cannot get on live. But they are chomping at the bit to hear this recording. So Sherard, Elizabeth, Judy, Ellis, everyone, I want to say a big thank you and a big hello, aloha, to everyone that will be listening to this recording later with a cup of tea or whatever is their tipple. Um, so thank you for those of you that either stayed up late or actually got up very early. So um, this is a brilliant straddle for us today. So, and what it is, um, Elizabeth, we said we would talk about um, talking to tomorrow. And why were we going to do that? That's because Elizabeth, <laughs> I mean, you and I have known each other since about 2008 and we met on the island of Mallorca where of course you used to live and Judy was there with us at that time, although I don't think Judy met you that year, um, but we were all there for our first inaugural Ed Edgewalker um, workshop um, overseas. And since then, I've walked on the edge with you, Elizabeth, you, Judy, and many others, um, right the way through this interesting bridge 
into this time where we're sort of almost AC after Corona, are we? Or are we still in DC during Corona? But um, Elizabeth, what you've done over the years is um, become an evolution biologist. And I'm never sure whether I like job titles these days or not, but I certainly love the title evolution biologist and also a futurist, Elizabeth. So would you like to come off mute and tell us all what is an evolution biologist and how do you see the future? Over to you, Elizabeth. Well, aloha mai, Kako. That's uh, hello to you all, dear friends. And um, I am an evolution biologist because it's a way of being a deep pastist and uh, tracking Earth's history over 4 billion years is what I mean by a deep past. And also the whole cosmos, which takes us back many billions of years more than that, to see everything in context, to see our Earth in the context of cosmos, and then to track what has happened to Earth and how it's evolved in order to understand our human journey. And I would say really what I was always aiming for was where are we headed? Not just where have we come from, but where are we headed? So in order to be a good futurist, I had to be a good pastist. If you don't understand where you've come from, it's, much, it's harder to see where it's possible to go next. Well, Elizabeth, that's so profound. Um, you know, in my very simple language, although pastist has now become a word that I love, thank you for that new bit of vocabulary. But in my simple language, you know, I've, all, I've long since honored feedback and also feed forward, you know, so, you know, I, I sort of, it doesn't quite dance in your very deep area of the deep past, but it really does for me throw a light on a new appreciation of yesterday and um, all our yesterdays, God bless uh, John Lennon as well in the Beatles, you know, with yesterday, and they honored the fact that the past was indeed important. So, so Elizabeth, when, let, let's, let's go into understanding the world then. So, you know, what in the world is going on in the world today? Over to you. Yes, well, what I'm finding in the world today is that many people are, are confused and depressed because so many things seem to be thrown at us at once and it's a little bit difficult to see what is this, this strange transition time. We kind of recognize it as a transition time between epochs or the, is it the Anthropocene, the era of humans on earth? Uh, what on earth is this all about? And so for me, uh, studying evolution actually made me an optimist in many ways, especially because what I discovered some somebody needs to mute themselves. We're getting extra sound. We are indeed. Um, Gerard, <laughs> could you check out who that is? Thank yes, you so much, Elizabeth. Let's let's Just make sure everybody else is yeah. on. Yeah, Doctor Doctor Judy kindly sent us all a message to say, please, that would be lovely if you could go on mute. Um, yes. Elizabeth, uh, back to you on the the is it the error of the human being or or indeed is yes. it like you good to be an optimist? Over to right. you. Well, well, probably the biggest discovery I made as an evolution biologist was the way evolution itself cycles through something I came to call the maturation curve, where young species are very feisty and competitive and very creative in that competitive process, but eventually they mature into cooperation. And what's that all about? Well, for one thing, it turns out that collaborating, cooperating is much less energy expensive than competing is. And so I came to see our current world, especially the past 6,000 years or so, as being a competitive, youthful time of empire building, where first we had actual emperors ruling the empires around the world and uh, competitively bringing more and more people into the empires. 
And then we moved into national empires, and now we're in corporate empires, and all of them are in this creative competitive mode. So what I think is happening on Earth now is that we're trying to get through this adolescent crisis, if you like, to move into our mature collaboration cooperation time. It doesn't mean that we have no more competition. After all, the Olympics, which we're seeing now in Japan, were designed to have people compete in order to push each other into excellence. And that's a kind of friendly competition that pushes you to excellence. Uh, I was in China, if I can just tell a quick story, in 1973, and my group uh, of Science for the People uh, were, were taken to a basketball game. And my Chinese host next to me leaped up and cheered at the first basket, so I knew which team he was rooting for. Uh, but then the other team made a basket, and he got up with equal enthusiasm and cheered for that one. So I, I asked through the interpreter, uh, which team is yours? And, and he said back, what do you mean? And I said, well, which team do you want to win? He said, well, how do I know which is the best team? And eventually, <laughs> we had a conversation about this in which he explained that the reason we pit the two teams against each other is to drive excellence. So I, I tried actually on Mallorca to get a school to do this. I didn't succeed. But the idea was, suppose you say nothing to the coach and the team, the two teams that are playing each other, but you say to the audience beforehand, the parents from both sides, tonight we're going to cheer excellence and everybody is going to cheer for every point scored. And at the end of the game, the team that makes the most points will make a party for the other team, for the what we call the losing team, because they've driven them to extra excellence. So you see, we don't have to give up competition. We just have to move from hostilities to harmonies when we do it. Oh, Elizabeth, that's such a such a touching um, a touching analogy. What a wonderful story to wrap that point in. And it's not just touching in the heart, but it also touches the head. So it really does seem to connect uh, that heart and the head, and of course, then the hands as well, right into into achieving. And um, what we discussed the other day, Sherard, on another webinar, webinar is, is achieving the mastery and the mastery of team and the mastery of self. And that's just so wonderful. And I, it makes me wonder, Elizabeth, just going back into biologist, um, what does nature have to say about cooperation, uh, co competition and collaboration? Over to you on nature. Yes, well, that takes us into the, the insides, if you like, of this maturation cycle, because half of the roughly 4 billion years of Earth's history or evolution was only microbial uh, life on the planet. And uh, so 2 billion years of only what we nowadays call bacteria and were called archaea. Well, we call them archaea if they're that old, right? If they were here that long ago. And they went through this incredible time over those two billion years in which, for example, they caused uh, global hunger by eating up all the free food, the acids and, and sugars and things that were lying around on Earth's crust. And, and there was actually global hunger going on until they figured out how to make food from what was still there. And that gave us the oxygen economy. And so, so they had faced both global hunger and global pollution and nothing since that ancient time has ever done it again at the global scale until we humans came along, which is why I think the microbial world is of special interest to us. They were the first to lick global problems <laughs> and nature is very intelligent. You know, somehow these ancient bacteria recognized that collaboration is cheaper, less energy consumptive. We talk in money, they were talking energy, right? <laughs> Same thing. And uh, so they, they built the nucleated cell out of bacteria with different lifestyles coming together in community. And then what happened was, now there are two kinds of cells on the planet, the bacterial ones 
and the nucleated ones. They're living side by side. The nucleated ones are the new kids on the block and it takes them another billion years before they form their cooperatives, which we know as multi-celled creatures. And we of course are one of those multi-celled creatures. So is everything else that's big enough for you to see with your eyes. <laughs> and so we see this cycle repeating itself. And that's why I see human history in that same mode where many indigenous cultures went through the, the competitive phase into collaborative phase. And they would have one tribe producing meat, the other one producing veggies, and they would trade with each other. And they build a lot of collaboratives. But we've never had to do this at the global scale. What we did start doing at the global scale was the empire building that I said is now about 6,000 years old. So what we're, what we're in now, the situation is that we have to move from this competitive hostilities, which warfare is so expensive, we could be using that energy, that money for all kinds of wonderful cooperative ventures. And we know that. We really know what it means to be mature because we know it from families. We know it from communities. You don't see families starving three kids to feed just one of the fourth one, you know? We, we know these things. And once we get that nature is organized in these units that are embedded within each other, what uh, Arthur Kustler called holarchy, holons, entities within each other. Our body is a holarchy of cells and organs and organ systems in the whole body. And then we as a species within the earth and the earth within the solar system and nature is all over these holarchies. And when you see that healthy living systems obey the same principles at all levels of holarchy, you just have to look to your own body to see extreme cooperation among some 50 trillion cells and 10 times that many bacteria in our guts and on our skins, all keeping us alive. If we didn't have those bacteria, we wouldn't live. Uh, it's very hard to, to develop a sterile animal, like a sterile mouse in a lab, they die. You know, <laughs> It's very hard to keep them alive at all. So we're, we have to learn to make friends and not only with our human others, but with all of nature and especially now with the microbial world. Elizabeth, wow, that's a powerful answer. Um, and in a minute, I'm going to ask Sherrod if there are any questions in the chat and, and feel free to pop anybody in, any questions in everybody. In fact, I was remiss to say that at the beginning, put them in and I'll try and weed them through. Um, Elizabeth, I mean, making friends, before I ask you a question on that, I just want to acknowledge actually John Vetch online today, all the way from New Zealand. John, I haven't seen you for many years. It's wonderful to have you here. Um, thank you very, very much. Also, you, Amanda Turner from um, the UAE and, and Garda, also from the UAE. How are you all? So, Elizabeth, um, back to making friends and, you know, particularly with the bacterias and, you know, everything around us. I mean, it seems like a natural whoops, segue into just touching on COVID and um, how, I mean, do we really make friends with COVID or and what's your future sense on after Corona, AC. Over to you, Elizabeth. Okay, let me first say aroha nui to John in Aotearoa. And uh, uh, yes, COVID is a very interesting example because there are different ways of looking at this crisis. And one of my favorite ones is maybe we made a soul agreement to lock ourselves up because we recognized all the damage we're doing on the planet and we had to step back and retreat and notice that as soon as we stopped flying and doing all these economic activities, nature was recovering with remarkable speed. Uh, we saw whole ecosystems, you know, being cleaning up themselves. We saw cities, atmospheres cleaning uh, so many things. So that's one angle on it. Another angle on it is that yes, there are microbes that can do us damage. We are challenged in evolution by some microbes, but it's a tiny, tiny percentage of those. Uh, as I said, your gut bacteria number 10 times as many as all of your 50 trillion cells, and they actually run your immune system. 
So right there, recognize that without bacteria, your immune system would not be there, wouldn't function. And it makes sense because what you put into your body usually comes through your mouth into your gut. So the first line of defense are the bacteria that line your gut, right? That figure out who's friends and who's enemies, build that immune system. And we're not respectful enough of it because we treated all bacteria as evil germs up, up to about 30 years ago, we invented the antibiotics in Greek meaning anti-life drugs. And we started selling them in kiosks all over the world and you didn't need a prescription. People took them for everything that went wrong. And I said, you're shooting yourselves in the foot as my son reminded me recently, 30 years ago. Uh, I was saying, be very careful because you're putting evolutionary pressure on the worst ones, which is exactly what we now see in hospitals where most antibiotics don't work anymore. Uh, they are in some ways the most dangerous places in our society for infections. So we've done it, taken these things in very peculiar ways. Now we see viruses as all are evil, evil things that drill their way into your cells. The fact is that Viruses were, in, were invented by bacteria billions of years ago as a communication system. They can't do anything on their own. To get into your cells, they have to be allowed in. Doors have to be open to them. And we see that this coronavirus uh, seemed to have surface proteins covering the viral DNA, RNA, uh, that, that could trick cells into opening the doors to them. So yes, we have to be careful about them, but then look at your sanitizing spray bottle and it will tell you it's 99 point something percent effective, which means a small number are going to get away and guess which ones they will be. The hardiest, the worst, the ones to fear the most. So again, in some senses, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. You know, in nature, everything is recycled what's waste to one species is food to another. So there's constant cleanup crews everywhere. Humans have put ourselves, because we're a social species, into these huge city hives, and we got pretty nasty about them. We did not recycle our wastes properly, and we became breeding grounds for some of the worst diseases. And so we had to learn sanitation and sanitation has done more to keep us disease-free than any other medical uh, medication has in, in the past few centuries. So good old soap and water is still, you know, one of your best protections. So we have to be sensible. We have to stop thinking all microbes are somehow evil and figure out how do we live with them in the future? You know, never before have we had a disease the diagnosis of which depended on a test that the actual inventor of the test said couldn't diagnose the disease. But, you know, we never had a measles test, a, a whooping cough test. You had to show some symptoms to show that you had a disease. And now we don't have to do that anymore. In fact, that most of the positive tests are on people who have antibodies who don't infect other people because they are already immune, but they're counted as COVID cases. So we have a lot of kind of wonky science going on. And I see this all as part of the way this crisis is being managed is part of the whole business of trying to get beyond the, the em corporate empire and seeing now the marriage, for instance, of big pharma and big agriculture uh, in the worst ways where the same company can pollute your food supply with toxic chemicals, ruin your immune system, and then sell you medications to cure you when your immune system is shot. We need to look at that big picture of what's going on in the world. We need to learn how to do business way better than that more not a sickness care system, but a true health care system, which depends on our eating healthy food, having healthy respect for microbes, and dealing with it the way we have managed with other diseases in the past. Elizabeth, thank you. I mean, that was so full, so rich, um, um, and sort of turning something that, you know, I suppose in some ways could have unnerved many, you know, into some super rational thought that, as you said, 
you know, um, um, we, nature recycles so naturally. So indeed we come too. So bringing that circle around and acknowledging and honoring, which some people have put in the chat that China saw blue skies for the first time in maybe centuries and peacocks apparently moved, walked down the streets of Mumbai and we all heard about dolphins in the canals in, in, in uh, Venice. Um, Wow, what a way that nature came back into us. But we do have a question in the chat, Elizabeth, that says, how did this all start? How did we all start? What's your thoughts on how we started? Over to you. Who is, who is we? Humans? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question, isn't it? So, so <laughs> humans, the world, Earth. I mean, what do you, what, when you're asked about when was the start and what was the start? Well, I usually ask, are you talking, I usually ask, are you talking about the COVID crisis? Are you talking about the origins of humanity? Yeah, uh, let's go to origins of humanity. We mean, uh, where did we, we start? Big picture, origins of humanity. Thank you. Well, it's interesting. That's probably the hardest question for me as an evolution biologist, because I don't think all the evidence is in yet <laughs> about how we got here. Uh, there, there is something unique about humanity, uh, and, and it's in part it's our, our self-reflexive um, rational thinking, elevating rational thinking, um, constantly puzzling over things, the rest of nature seems to know what to do and humans don't. So one of the things that happened was there was a rap rapid evolution of the brain in which we gave up knowing what to do for freedom of choice. So humans are uniquely free to choose their way, meaning you have to choose how to find mates how to build homes, how to divide up territory and resources, how to govern ourselves. All of these things are challenges for humanity that other animals don't have in the same way. Now, it is possible that we have been GMO'd by alien species. I can't say that is an impossibility, nor can I tell you that it is the case, right? So I'm saying I have to hold alternative hypotheses about the origins of humanity myself as a scientist. Thank you so much, uh, Elizabeth. In any case, we need to have some things that we're still exploring, don't we? And which takes me on to exploration and aliens and species. Um, should we really be eager to explore space when we seem to don't have no one what to do here on earth. Is it time, particularly that we have some um, supporters from the pharma and the agri industries being wanting to be the first to uh, citizens, if you like, to touch down on in parts of uh, the universe. Over to you, Elizabeth. Well, you know, I identify myself as, as a, a cosmic snoop, endlessly curious and, and an adventurer, an explorer of new territory. So uh, I, I really understand why humans want to go into space. And I'm curious about how many space beings have already been on Earth and are with us and are have to hide from our weapons and things like that. Um, so, but whether whether we should have a situation where an Elon Musk and a Richard Branson are rich enough, to, you know, to build their own rockets and go off into space when we have so much to do here is another matter. Uh, years ago, it's decades ago, I was asked to, to comment on what could we put on a space flag. This was an MIT project in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology project uh, to what do we want to put on a space plaque that gets shot out, hoping somebody will find it out there uh, to advertise humanity and to say, here we are, you know, and I said, well, if I were you, I, I wouldn't even send such a thing out before we clean up our own house. <laughs> I don't think humanity is in a position to advertise itself yet. <laughs> so I, I'd like to see us reach our maturity before we do that. And I think we probably look pretty juvenile to aliens. You know, we, the government now is admitting that, uh, you know, more or less admitting that they're real. 
And I happen to know that the Chinese and Russian governments have both said they would only come out uh, talking about the reality of, of uh, uh, ETs when the US does. So maybe they will come forth too. They've all been exploring these things. And, um, you know, I, the reason that they have to dematerialize, of course, is because they have to escape our weapons. And I, I, I have to talk about my keyboard metaphor to explain this. Uh, what, what both uh, quantum science and standard physical model agree on in Western science is that the universe is made of vibrations. Uh, that you have, think of a whole endless keyboard of different vibrations. Then put matter in the low keys and electromagnetic energy in the mid-range. And then you get up to zero point energy, which is as far as Western science has been able to measure with physical instruments, because that's as far as the physical goes up the keyboard. And then you get into mind and spirit and consciousness at the higher, the higher the vibrations are, the less physical they are. So other sciences in the world from the Taoist scientists and the Vedic sciences of India uh, they start at the other end of the same universal keyboard in the cosmic consciousness realm and derive the rest of the keyboard through energy into matter by slowing down the vibrations. So it may be an oversimplified metaphor, but it explains, for example, why a UFO that you see in the physical can suddenly disappear. It has simply slid itself up into the higher vibrations to escape our weapons, because <laughs> if you don't see us, you can't shoot us. <laughs> so we, why do we have this hostile attitude when probably every advanced civilization in the cosmos has run into nuclear energy and its potential and either blew itself up or went peaceful? Uh, and so I expect that whoever's coming here is very likely to be peaceful and could have, you know, if their technology is as good as, as it seems to be, uh, they could have taken us out long ago. So could we end the hostilities? Can we go into peaceful cooperation? And then we could have real fun. Uh, you know, they might be more willing to communicate with us. And I don't yeah. know. Well, uh, communication, connection, collaboration. I mean, you know, in some ways, um, we, uh, as we wander along the road less traveled as uh, humans, we probably could do with all the insights that we could get. And certainly your insights were just so rich today, uh, Elizabeth. And, and so as we sort of move into sort of the last eight minutes or so, let's, could we take it into, um, uh, into leadership, meaning, you know, stretching the word leadership, you know, we're all leaders. What can we all do here on earth to, to really guide um, a future that where we're open, we're listening to all of these sounds and signs around from nature and from the universe, because the universe has it all out there for us, doesn't it? You know, the metaphorical larger universe, and it's just us to be open and awake to listen, isn't it, for example? So on that, Elizabeth, as well, in a minute, I'm going to ask one person to come in and also speak with you, which is you, John Scott. So get ready. Over to you, Elizabeth. Oh, well, um, yes, you know, I love your concept of edge walkers uh, to, to train leadership from that perspective of that we are walking on the edge now. We're at the edge of a precipice in a sense. Uh, we can see what we've done wrong. We can see why we can't continue to do all this polluting and this huge gaps between rich and poor and this, uh, you know, grubby greediness kind of that we got into that we know what to do but we need to empower each other to work as incipient leaders into this new world. I think we all know what we want that new world to look like in many ways. We want it to be non-polluting. We want to build clean green technologies. We want to have a world of caring and sharing where we love each other rather than making constant divisions and enmities and of course, nothing has, has driven such deep wedges between us as this COVID crisis now. We've allowed the leadership of the world to put us into this you know, pro and anti mode when we should be 
for the first time, humans are facing having to collaborate at a global level. As I said, it's been done by indigenous cultures, more or less locally. But we have to now understand distributed leadership and understand learning from nature and living harmoniously with nature. How do we build the leadership that gets us back into healthy food, that gets us back into so many cultures who had very effective natural medicines uh, and take the best of our modern technology with us and leave the others behind. You know, th this is what leadership is about, finding each other and doing different parts of the work. Everybody has something that they're good at and that they love doing, and you become an attractor to others when you're doing something you love whether it's writing songs to inspire people to a better future or doing, doing uh, campaigning for politicians that will lead us better, whatever it is, a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the earth, as Rumi put it. So we have to find each other and encourage each other and know that we can get through this perfect storm of crises because we know what we're leaving behind is unsustainable, which means it can't last. And that leaves the whole future so wide open. Uh, yes, uh, Elizabeth, again, you know, just beautifully said, and thank you so much for um, uh, poignantly folding in Edgewalkers and the Edgewalker philosophy there. Indeed, you know, the first Edgewalker skill is sensing the future. And the second Edgewalker skill is risk-taking you know, and how to take the risk out of risk-taking. And, and, and Dr. Judy Neal, you're going to do a capture for us in a moment. So no doubt you'll be able to come on and maybe answer a little bit of that question from an edge walker perspective too. You know, what should we be doing as leaders? And thank you all for your questions. I can see them coming in, um, Sherard. I'm looping in as much as I can. But John I Scott. John Scott you, is coming in, yeah. Yes, I'd like John Scott. Uh, thank you so much, Sherard. John Scott, could you just, uh, in a nano, nail an inquiry that you have for Dr. Elizabeth? Uh, meet John Scott Chukka, Dr. Elizabeth. Over to you. Lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for your time uh, this uh moment, I was going to say evening, but for me, it's evening, this moment. I appreciate it very much. Can you hear me? Yes, yes off you go. Okay, great. So I'm curious, uh, doctor, how you would char characterize uh, the future of society uh, and how it will be impacted by this, uh, I'd like to think of it optimistically as this awakening where people like those of us on this call are joined by hopefully a, a larger mass endeavor for consciousness uh, as people begin to really examine how, why, where uh, they're working, they're living, uh, all the decisions that I think people were lulled into, uh, you know, not a false sense of security, but just a, a numbness based on pacing and freneticism in life that we've all been given this, this odd gift of time and perspective. So how do you imagine this time, uh, as Susan said, DC during coronavirus and AC, hopefully soon for us, uh, for all of us, how do you feel as if this time will impact society going forward? Well, as I said, I think this time has been a great time of reflection, a great time of connecting with each other through these new media like Zoom, uh, where the world doesn't have any boundaries anymore, where we can learn so well from each other. And I look to role models like the, the uh, Sarvadia movement in Sri Lanka, where 15,000 villages and hamlets, little groups of people are all helping each other to, uh, to develop on two principles that are taught to all the children. They taught to meditate on inner peace and generosity, just those two things. If I'm a peaceful person, and if my focus in life is what do I have to give to others, we'd all be really well off. That's better than the golden rule. And then in, in Spain, the Mondragon cooperatives are urban collect cooperatives where everybody becomes an owner in the business that they're working in and nobody can earn more than six times the lowest salary and everybody's happy with that and it works well and they got through the de 
the recessions rather well. Uh, so we have, and then the Global Echo Village Network, where they're all sustaining themselves and taking care of each other, and then linking up with all the other Echo Villages across the planet. So we have BALI, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. How do you build a local living economy out of all the businesses that you face in your personal life? You know, uh, Judy Wicks in Philadelphia pioneering that. Uh, so I look to all these role models, knowing that we know what to do, knowing that there are people who are already doing it, and that all we have to do is shift our perspective away from the hostilities into these harmonies and team up with each other and with those things that are already working well so that we can navigate our way through this storm of crises and come out the other end with a clean, green, happy, caring, sharing society. It is possible. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you so much, John Scott. Um, we're nudging up to time now, actually just um, nudging over Elizabeth, but just I just want a quick last one because I just feel that we really need to get down to, I don't know, the, the underbelly belly of, of capitalism, if you like, and how we survive in the communities that we have built. And of course, we all would like them to be sharing and caring collaborative communities, as you quite rightly say. I mean, that seems to be the smart, simple solution, doesn't it? Solution. But what about how we're, how, what do you think about tax and paying our way? Let's just take it on a physical fundamental for the minute, Elizabeth, in a, in a mature society. And then we'll say goodbye to you there for a, a while. Over to you. Well, I, long ago, I became enamored of a little essay called Thinkers and Treasurers that said that every human society has always had treasurers to collect taxes and thinkers to rationalize the tax collection so that it would be peaceful and you didn't have to force it. <laughs> and that whether it was the Boy Scouts or a nation state, you know, you need a, a pool of whatever your currency is uh, to keep the thing going. So the problem is that we, of course, under this very predatory form of capitalism that we, we're trying to get beyond, uh, we've gotten into a situation where the taxes are extremely unfair and where the wealthiest people just don't pay them anymore. And I don't have to really say a lot about that. So if you see the taxes as just sharing your income with your community so, the, so that you know that some of what you're collecting from the world is for you and some is for sharing, uh, it puts a different slant on the, on the whole matter of taxes. Um, that. Yeah, well, it certainly brings it back into sharing and, and caring and one team, one dream, which in fact, you know, my little six-year-old friend reminded me about three week, three months ago when we were doing craft time that, you know, come on, girl, she said to, an, a, you know, a table of under six, it's one team, one dream, let's share the colours, let's share the colours. <laughs> so how wonderful. So Elizabeth, um, huge thank you. Don't go anywhere. Stay where you are. You're in the room, but the room is filled with love for you. There's lots of lovely um, other suggestions and book reads and quotes in the chat, which Sherrod's going to gather for us. But what I'd like to do now is take the bridge over to Dr. Judy Neal. Um, and Dr. Judy, um, you, you wrote the book Edgewalkers um, and the, the tagline, um, uh, people and organizations that take risks, build bridges and break new ground, you know, way back in 2006. And you, of course, are the, you know, the founder and the chairman of uh, Edgewalkers International. And um, wow, you know, the work that we do together is outstanding. And certainly the programs that I've taken with you, Judy, have changed my life. So thank you so much. And I hope for the better, but of course, as Elizabeth just said, we can just all keep trying, can't we? This lifelong, lifelong development and the cycle of life. So Judy, um, could we ask you to, number one, give us a capture of what you've just heard and then take us into some news on Edgewalkers. Over to you. Thank, thank you so much, Susan. And thank you so much, Elizabeth. This has been so, inspiring um, and I'm particularly struck where where you started by talking about 
um, how evolution happens and how it moves from hostile competition to collaboration, to the sharing and caring, and how human beings are in their adolescence collectively right now. Although I think um, the people who we call edge walkers, who um, really have a foot in that cosmic world and a foot in the material world, the bridging that continuum that you talked about, that on the one end there's the Vedic sciences and the, the Taoist scientists, and on the other end, there's the material capitalism and um, ways of everyday life that um, humanity lives with. The, that uh, edge walkers, as they sense into the future, are building on a past evolution of community and of collaboration. And we want that for the future. And so you've given us so many stories and so many examples that give us hope for the future. And I think hope is one of those evolutionary forces in humanity, that when we have hope, when we have vision, when we can see the possibility uh, through examples like Madrigon and other examples that you gave, when people are already doing it, in, then we once it's been done, we know it can be done. That, that's a part of, of uh, being on the leading edge of sensing the future and of creating the future. It's having that vision and moving, moving towards that. Um, in, in the sensing the future skill, when I was interviewing leaders who have a very strong spiritual life, highly conscious leaders who are also very successful in the material world, and, and really more role models for us. There were, were three kinds of ways people sensed the future. And one was a projection from the past into the future, which we can see in evolutionary processes so that we can see the, the complexity, the holons, that kind of thing. Um, so there's a linear projection. And then there's the intuitive projection, which happens from contemplative practices or from being in nature or from dreaming together. We, we can intuit what the future is calling us to do. And then there's what I call co-creating with the universe. And that is following our passion, following our dreams, going beyond what's ever been done before. And um, not knowing how we're going to do it, but knowing it must be done. And I think COVID-19 is really um, a pivot point for calling us to do what's never been done collectively. So um, those are some of the thoughts that I've had listening to you and, and just being so excited by what you're saying. Um, and my favorite word that you've repeated several times is harmony that that's what we're wanting to move towards and and that exists in so many places the news doesn't print that kind of thing it doesn't tell these positive stories we in our communities need to tell them and so i think the the shift happens in that holonic way the holarchy that you talked about where for instance the edgewalker community is discovering Sharad's community and um, there's some people here from the Pivot Projects community and from other communities. And Susan, a month ago, um, or a couple of months ago, I can't remember, you had um, people speak to us from other communities. And as I think that the evolution happens when these communities connect with more communities, connect with more communities, and it, it just becomes the new way of thinking and being in a world that's so challenging. So this has been absolutely fantastic. I'm, I'm just thrilled. I hope we have lots more conversations with you. you know, we have so much to learn from your thinking and um, just delighted to have you with us. So my two quick announcements are that our next Edgewalker Cafe is um, 
let's see, it's, I think it's October 26th. I had it written down and I forgot about it, but it's- It's four. August, August actually, not August. Why do yeah. I say that? I mix up the- You say October because my birthday's in October, Judy. That's why yeah. I say that. <laughs> Thank you, Susan. Uh, so August 26th, our guest, as you mentioned earlier, is Cindy Wigglesworth, who is um, an expert in spiritual intelligence and uh, she'll have much to inspire us by. And the other announcement is that um, we have developed some instruments in Edgewalkers for people to do self-assessment. And one of those has been around for quite a while called the Edgewalker Profile that helps people look at what are their, their qualities and skills and how they might develop them. But just a month ago, we released the second instrument called the Archetypes of Change. And I am finding myself so passionate about how change and transformation happens and that's one of the reasons i've loved today's conversation and in my research on people who do really uh, catalyze change which is the people we call the edge walkers edge walkers eat change for breakfast we love change and we get bored if things aren't transforming and, and evolving um, but not everybody addresses change that way, and the world would be pretty chaotic if they all did. So the the instrument looks at other ways people can respond to change and how we can understand people's relationship to change, our own relationship to change, and what ways we can grow and develop to create healthy change in the midst of all this chaos. That's called the Archetypes of Change instrument. It's on the Edgewalker website. It costs $25 to take, and you get a 22-page report. So I invite people to go to edgewalkers.org and explore some of the things that we have to offer. Again, Elizabeth, thank you. I'm just hoping that we do have many more conversations with you, and it's just such a joy to meet you after all these years of our paths almost crossing. Mahalo. <laughs> thank you, Judy. And yes, okay, of course, deep gratitude to you, Elizabeth. But, you know, still plucking in on some of the words that you said, and of course, the analogy or the, the, the reference to the universal keyboard, and you talked about community and connecting and about writing songs. Well, we've got a little... Um, I don't know, special few minutes now where we're going to invite Ellis Ralph to come in. And Ellis, you see on screen. Ellis um, is a, a senior edge walker. He's on our senior team, if you go online. He's also Judy's wonderful husband and so and partner, and they look after each other wonderfully, which of course is what is important for us all, that we have people that we can look after and they can look after us and he's also a marvelous um, musician and um, um, writes his own songs and I ought to say so does Judy Neal <laughs> incidentally so Judy can can put on some some really good other garb and get up on stage and, and rock it so well done to you Judy but I also know that there's people on screen today like Greg Hunt's going to enjoy this because I know he likes to strum a few strings and I can see Maria Perrin has got her photo on but there's some beautiful sound healing bowls there and so Maria from Rasal Hema um, I know you're going to really enjoy this too but um, here's, here's for you all. I give you uh, Ellis Ralph. Ellis, take it away. Thank you, Susan, for inviting me. I'm, I'm bringing a song called Heal the Earth that I wrote about five years ago. dream the air was fresh and clean it tasted so delicious when I breathed and so it seemed when I awoke so strange the people all still spoke of climate change 
There's enough of us who care enough to share awareness everywhere. We swear we will repair and heal the earth. We have everything we need to succeed, and we will take the lead to proceed to sow the seeds of her rebirth. in my dream the oceans seemed to gleam a golden green they glowed aquamarine i cried to find when i awoke the sea was so choked with soaking garbage and debris there's enough of us to care enough to share awareness everywhere. We swear we will repair and heal the earth. We have everything we need to succeed and we will take the lead to proceed to sow the seeds of her rebirth. Our new dream that you and I have seen. The future's bright and green and so serene. We'll sing our song, we'll sing along so strong, right the wrong, so come along, let's carry on. We'll right the wrong, so come along. Let's carry on. We'll right the wrong, so come along. Let's carry on. Ellis, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, beautiful. But Dr. Elizabeth, can I give you the take the floor to just summarize for us, having listened to the music of the world. Well, thank you so much, Ellis. Mahalo for your song. I think it reflects that we all know what needs doing and that we have the capacity for doing it together with each other. So once again, as Rumi said, there are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the earth do what you love doing to make a better world so that other people will find you an attractor and want to do it with you. Because it's all about community now. Community was a bad word through the whole darkness of, of, of the, you know, communist scare. And now we've got viral scares and we're always putting ourselves into fear mode when we need to put ourselves into love mode. And to have the confidence they have the confidence that we have it in us to do this thing together. Well, Elizabeth, that takes me um, into the other word that I know you and I both love, and that's from community into communion and common unity and common purpose with common sense for common good. Can you just talk to us about communion and then we'll say goodbye? Over to you. <laughs> Well, I'd love to because I love the distinction between the communication systems that the bacteria started with inventing viruses and that we do as humans with languages. But most of nature is in communion with each other so that a tree, for instance, doesn't speak a human language, but it can. It has all our five senses and 15 more 
I mean, whoa, trees are such elders and they commune. And so do the aliens, as we call them, the extraterrestrials, they commune. So you don't have to find a language in which to speak to them. And we all have it, our cells commune with each other. That is how the whole body knows what's going on in it and can get everything done in harmony and peace. So practice both, practice communication and the silent communion that transfers information and love directly. Beautiful, Elizabeth, thank you very much. And so I'm going to bless you all goodbye um, and send gratitude to you all for just being you and for all the work that you all do here on this wonderful earth and um, send you love. As Elizabeth reminded us, it all must come from the heart. So sending you love. So thank you, Noor. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Grant, for being here. Grant's here, Elizabeth. Uh, thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Chakran. From the, you've been such a brilliant participant. Bless you all. Sharad, thank you. Yeah. Elizabeth, goodbye. See you. Bye, thank Sue. You. Bye, Greg. <laughs> Bye, Chaminda. Bye, Mohammed. Bye, Garda. <laughs> Bye, William. Thanks for all your input, William. Thank you, Ali. Thank you, Mohammed. And George Kuna. Thank you for being with us, George. God bless you in India. Sean. Bye, Noor. Bye, Mohammed. I'll talk to you. Noor is a young biology student, Elizabeth. She's gone offline now. She's at the UAE University. Yeah, she was so eager to be here today. Bye, everybody. Oh, Ch Chakran's playing some instruments. Um, Ellis, he could do a duet with you. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. God bless everyone. Bye. Bye. Why are we?